book is obviously very important and uh, sort of uh, deeply impactful book for the LGBT community. And in particular for Pride Month, I want to thank you for uh, choosing to showcase this book. The, the thing that sort of struck me the most as I was reading the book was how true to the historical stories and narratives uh, I've heard about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Ultrarescue and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. I'm in New York City today at the offices of my law firm, Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe, with a special episode of our podcast as part of Oric's celebration of Pride Month and the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. I'm very proud to say that Oric has a long-standing commitment to inclusiveness that enables our LGBTQ lawyers and staff to be authentic and to thrive. For 13 consecutive years, Oric achieved a perfect score in the Human Rights Campaign Foundation's annual Corporate Equality Index, which evaluates LGBTQ-related policies and practices. And Oric was one of the first law firms to offer benefits to same-sex couples and to also offer fully inclusive transgender benefits. In connection with our Pride Month celebration, New York City office leader and Oric partner, Laura Metzger, suggested that I record a podcast discussion of the very moving, beautiful, and at the same time devastating, award-winning novel, The Great Believers, by Rebecca McKay. The Great Believers is about the AIDS epidemic in Chicago in the 1980s, its impact on the young gay men in Boys Town, and on the survivors as well. I'm pleased to have two Oric colleagues join me in discussing this book. Alvin Lee, a member of the firm's Complex Litigation and Dispute Resolution Group, is highly active in pro bono matters and focuses his pro bono representation on low-income LGBTQ communities. And Amy Pasacreta, a member of Oric's restructuring group, joins us as well. Like many of my guests on the podcast, Amy is a prolific reader of a wide variety of books, and Alvin is as well. Welcome, Alvin and Amy. Glad to have you both with us. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. I recently posted a note on Twitter where I referred to The Great Believers as a moving and multifaceted novel that includes community and family, crisis and loss, memory and legacy, survivors and their burden, and with a life-affirming end. The Great Believers follows parallel narratives in alternating chapters. First, there's a group of friends in Chicago during the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s who are dealing with the loss and struggle and the day-to-day -day realities of the crisis. The story begins in 1985 with the funeral of a young man by the name of Nico. As the virus continues to take its toll on the gay community, Nico's sister, Fiona, comes to care for many of his friends. And then there is the search by Fiona 30 years later in 2015 for her estranged daughter who had joined a cult and was then living in Paris. While in Paris, Fiona stays with an old friend, a photographer, who documented the Chicago epidemic. And Fiona finds herself surrounded by memories and reminders of that time and begins to understand just how profoundly the AIDS crisis affected her life. 
grappling with what she sacrificed in caring for and loving these young men, sacrifices that affected her marriage and her relationship with her daughter. Truly parallel narratives, closely wonderful, woven together and beautifully done. One review referred to the great believers as a powerful meditation, not on death, but rather on the power and gift of love and friendship. There are so many themes running through this tale. Alvin and Amy, I look forward to hearing what you thought about the book and what themes resonated with you. Alvin? Well, Howard, first of all, thank you so much for inviting us to talk about this book. The book is obviously a very important and uh, sort of... uh, deeply impactful book for the LGBT community and in particular for Pride Month I want to thank you for uh, choosing to showcase this book you know I guess I'll start there the the thing that sort of struck me the most as I was reading the book was how true to the historical stories and narratives uh, I've heard about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s just for a little bit of context and background I was born in 1984 And so I didn't come of age until sort of after uh, the worst of the crisis had passed. But certainly throughout my activism and my pro bono uh, work, I've come to hear a lot of stories from folks that are in generations that preceded mine about the devastating effects that the epidemic had on cities like this, uh, New York, where we are right now, Uh, also on groups of friends, the LGBT community as a whole, And obviously the book was very well researched because everything that I read aligned very much with the stories that I'd heard uh, about the crisis and, you know, the devastation that the the virus wreaked uh, during the 80s and 90s. Um, You know, it, it in a lot of ways is a piece of fiction, obviously, but in a lot of ways it it's nonfiction. Uh, It's sort of a contextualized story about a particular uh, moment in time, and although we sort of see the characters navigate that in a, in a fictional story, the background and the context for the story is very much nonfiction and sort of historical narrative, and so that was sort of the first thing that struck me as I was reading the book. And Amy, um, you look at the book from a different perspective. One of the um, themes that uh, runs through the book is a chosen family. There's so many different examples. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think Alvin was talking about the community, the the, um, the community in Chicago, the group of the group of boys that boys is the wrong word. I guess the group of men that are living together who had been thrown out by their family, had been shunned by their family, and and chose that this group of people to to be with. Um, but I think when I when I think about it, cho- it wasn't just chosen family because in the beginning when you were referencing this, this story starts with Nico's funeral and so we see Nico and his sister who are very close and she becomes a caregiver not only for Nico but also for many of his friends um, that that get sick throughout the book um, but we see that you know Fiona is the biological family but she's surrounded by all of these chosen uh, chosen members of the family. So I think throughout the book, you see this combination of family members stepping up and family members stepping back. And I don't think that that's, it, you know, it's, just, it's sort of a, a segment, a piece of life. I mean, that's the way life is. You know, some families get along and some families don't. But the way that she weaves in this nonfiction, it's just, it's really, it's really moving. 
And, and on that point, it, it's interesting because the book opens up sort of portraying biological families as not particularly functional, right? So Nico's funeral uh, is one of the opening scenes of the book, obviously, and there's obviously a lot of strife between Nico and his family shortly before he passed, between Nico's sister Fiona and the family, and you sort of see the chosen family, this group of friends, this group of men in Chicago as being, you know, a true sort of uh, place where they can find love and acceptance and whatnot. And so that's kind of the opening sort of statement on, on biological versus chosen families in the beginning stages of the book. But later on, as you go deeper into the book, you realize that chosen families are not always, you know, peace, love, and happiness as well. There's a lot of dysfunction in chosen families as well. And I think that part of the message is that regardless of whether it's a biological family or a chosen family, there's always going to be some level of functionality and some level of dysfunction, um, which I found pretty interesting as well. So, Alvin, you mentioned um, uh, you expressed appreciation for the discussion about the book and how it was meaningful, um, and I appreciate that. Uh, you're, you're part of a, a book club with uh, gay friends, and some of whom are younger, even younger than you. And, and uh, what is the meaning? What do you think the meaning of the book is for them? Well, it's interesting. So, so I am in a book club here in New York City with about a dozen or so uh, friends of mine. We're all gay men in our 20s and 30s. Uh, and I would like to think that we're all relatively close in age, but reading a book like this actually shows the generational divide between someone like myself, who's in his mid-30s, and someone who might be, you know, in their mid-20s. Uh, we do have some, some uh, younger men in the group that are in their mid-20s, and they read this book, uh, and they sort of say, oh, well, this can't all be true. And it's kind of shocking because I certainly came of age at a time, you know, I remember when Magic Johnson happened. Uh, I was in elementary school at the time, and so this was very much something that was in my consciousness sort of from a very young age. But a lot of these people that were born after uh, sort of the, the worst of the epidemic had subsided um, don't know this history very well. And so I think that pieces like the books like this are incredibly important and impactful, like you said, Howard, because in a way it kind of memorializes this history and passes down to uh, future generations, both, I guess, in the LGBT community and, and not, uh, sort of what the experiences, what the real life experiences, everyday experiences were like for, for people that were living through this. So I think uh, uh, you mentioned that this was very well-researched, and it was, and that's very clear, but uh, the author uh, makes the point of saying that she hopes someday somebody will write a, non a truly um, uh, thorough nonfiction account of what happened uh, in Chicago. She, in connection with her research, she realized that there was so much about New York and San Francisco and virtually nothing about what happened in Chicago. And, uh, this really is a combination of fiction and nonfiction, but uh, the author herself has indicated that she really would like somebody to write the definitive uh, account. And just one comment on the choice to have the book set in Chicago. I know that the author is from Chicago, but I think that in some ways it even highlights more sort of the devastation that the virus had on communities because when you talk about New York, San Francisco, obviously the, those were larger gay communities in the 80s. Chicago, you know, seemed to have been a relatively smaller community compared to those two very large cities uh, and large communities. And 
it's even more sort of stark the devastation and the the havoc that the the virus wreaked on on places like Chicago, um, and so I think that in a lot of ways, you know, Chicago is a character in the story as well, and it, it seems like it was a very deliberate choice to to choose Chicago and to explore really what impact the virus had on on real people. So the um, challenges today, uh, you mentioned Alvin, your pro bono work. Uh, and, and the difference between the 80s and the 90s with the current generation, uh, is there something about the, how the culture has changed or how the culture has changed the LBGTQ community? Well, sure. So, you know, we are sitting here in Pride Month right now, and, you know, if you go to the Pride Parade down Fifth Avenue uh, later this month, you'll see J.P. Morgan Chase, you'll see <laughs> Goldman Sachs, you'll see, you know, all of the major airlines represented so on the one hand, of course, that's tremendous progress that's been made for the community. I mean, I think it's even shown on television, just like the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, on the other hand, I'm curious what it would have been like to attend the New York City Pride Parade in the late 80s or in the early 90s. I imagine it was a much more delicate and politically minded time. Uh, you know, obviously there are challenges that face our community these days and that really need attention, both from community members and from our government leaders. But, you know, there isn't sort of the overwhelming sense that the Pride Parade is a political event. It seems more like a celebratory uh, sort of corporate event these days. And I'm guessing that that's probably not the case if you go back to the 80s and 90s. Oh, definitely. I mean, we were ta well. We were talking as we were before we started about the I, I like the rainbows are everywhere. I mean, but it, on the one hand, it's great. It's celebration. It's it's pride. And on the other hand, there's you know selling cups of coffee. But they weren't wouldn't have been using it. I think I don't think it would have been used to sell cups of coffee. Certainly in the '80s, it wouldn't have been looked at. I, I posted a picture the other day of the uh, pride flag uh, with a um, series of. Um, uh, Pick, uh, not pickup truck, Jeeps uh, in all the colors. And um, so there is a commercialization today, but, um, and maybe that is progress. Uh, broad acceptance is, is uh, very valuable, very important. I mean, I will say, thank God we're not dealing with something like the AIDS epidemic today. Um, you know, I'm guessing that at the time, if you're a gay man living in New York City in the 80s and 90s, you feel like you have no choice but to be politically active. You know, this is a life or death situation for you and your friends and you just feel ignored by the government, potentially, and I understand, certainly, that that was a unifying force. Um, again, however, I do think that there are a lot of very important issues that are still facing our community today, and uh, certainly, I think, you know, I would encourage all of my friends and people around me to become as active politically as possible around some of the issues that continue to face us today. And so in, in, in your work, I, I mentioned pro bono. Uh, I know you were involved uh, in probably several, but one, one particular pro bono engagement that uh, had meaningful to you, was meaningful to you in this context. Right. So obviously the Pride Parade was born out of a reaction to, to violence against the LGBTQ community. Um, and, you know, it's difficult to imagine New York City today sort of organized police violence against the community. Uh, in fact, we have quite a bit of police protection when you look at the Pride Parade and whatnot. But, you know, there still is violence directed towards members of our community. And Howard, what you referenced, a couple years ago I represented Pro Bono, the victim of a, a hate crime who lived in uh, Spanish Harlem here in New York City. Uh, he was beaten with a 
four foot long metal rod in the middle of the street in front of his apartment building by someone who lived in his building. Uh, was taken by ambulance to the emergency room, was suffering obviously all sorts of post-traumatic stress issues and obviously physical injuries as well. And so, you know, in our, in our own backyard here in New York City, it continues to this day. And, and we just saw uh, in the newspapers over the last couple of days an attack on two lesbian women uh, in London. So it does continue, and I think the, uh, I'll call it your call to arms, uh, your, your, your um, encouragement of everyone to be conscientious of the continued challenges uh, is very, very important. Um, so from a literary point of view, one of the other um, uh, themes uh, is uh, survivors uh, and their burden and their guilt. Uh, there's one quote from the book, uh, when someone's gone and you're the primary keeper of his memory, letting go would be a kind of murder. Mm. Uh, do you, Amy, you want to talk a little bit about the survivors and their bur burden and um, yeah, how that went through the book. It's it's interesting in in the book too because I, now now it's just um, at, towards the end of the book in 2015 they also talk about the um, the bombings, and so there's I was just thinking that's another sort of post traumatic stress. And then you have all of the survivors, the survivor guilt there. So there are a lot of pockets in the book where you have people impacted by events or things thrust upon them, and how do they react to them? Um, but on the on the keeping of 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 memories or the sur surviving and how you keep something alive. We have the, the, the dual stories. So Fiona, how does she deal with the, the, the death of all of her friends? And we're, we're learning about Nora and how she is keeping the memory alive of her great love. And, and it's, it, you know, pictures is actually, my, my husband always says he finds it depressing when he goes to auctions, um, like uh, flea markets, and he sees books and books of pictures being sold, you know, old-fashioned pictures, because Somebody's people, memories. Somebody's memories. So people were going on their beach vacation and took, you know, pages and pages of pictures, and nobody cares anymore. They're trying to sell it for 25 cents because of the, you know, the Coney, old Coney Island imagery, not because of the people in the pictures. So he is... He is very um, proactive in saving. We, um, his uncle passed away um, a few years ago, and so he took, his uncle was prolific in taking slides of when he was in Vietnam and when he was you know, overseas. So we have boxes and boxes and boxes of Uncle Rudy's slides everywhere. So when I was reading through, it's sort of like with, with Nora or with Richard and how you, you know, pay homage to these people that were so important in your life, how you remember them. Um, and I was thinking in, in Judaism, you every year you light a candle to, to make sure that you're remembering the people that have passed before you. Something like that, something to keep, to keep the memory going. Um, you know, what you said is very moving. You know, you won't, nobody cares anymore. That, that's, uh, unless you're continuing to talk about it or light the candle yeah. or you're having the retrospective that, that Richard has or they're pulling things from footnotes about the, the author, I'm sorry, the artist um, that, that Nora was in love with, you would not know about them. They, um, trying to think of the, yeah, that song, you know, or ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I mean, that's it. Yeah. And so that's why it's, 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 it's moving that you have two stark examples, but they're both sort of trying to do the same thing, whether it's in Fiona's work at the resale shop or, or Nora's continuing to be a proponent of getting these works shown. And, and Yale as well. Um, wanted very much to help her keep that memory alive. 
Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And and I and I don't know. It's interesting because I don't know in in Yale. I don't know what he memory wise what he is trying to keep or get rid of. I, I don't. I mean, meaning I'm seeing I see Fiona and I see Nora, but I don't know that the other characters in the book have a sense of that. It's more of a sense of yeah. surviving and 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 maybe it strikes a chord with him when he talks that, to, to Nora that's about what I'm it. Thinking. Yep. Yeah, maybe that's it. Well, so I think Amy hit the nail on the head that, you know, obviously there's a lot of parallels between Nora's story and Fiona's story, even though they're separated by, you know, decades and decades and the traumatic events from their formative years are very different. You know, on for Nora it was war. For Fiona it was a, I guess, a different kind of war. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, the epidemic in the eighties. Um, they're both sort of, I think, sort of saddled with survivors' guilt, I suppose. And both of them, almost to an obsessive degree, spend the rest of their lives kind of trying to cling on to the memory of the really traumatic events that happened to them when they were younger. Uh, we see it with Nora and with Fiona that their obsession with their their sort of formative traumatic events actually even makes it difficult for them to have functioning family relationships. Nora has a very troubled relationship with her family, as does Fiona, obviously. Uh, and so I think it just shows the, the impact that something like that would have on you. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned Yale because Yale plays a part in both of their attempts mm-hmm. to right. to memorialize history. For Nora, he's sort of the facilitator. He's trying to help her memorialize it. And then for Fiona, he is what Fiona is trying to memorialize and to, and to cling on to. He becomes the subject of sort of that that hearkening back to the, the traumatic event from, from Fiona's formative years. So maybe he's not the, the one trying to to kind of hold on to memories, but he definitely plays a role in both of those stories. We have women who uh, play a very significant role, um, as you were saying, um, in in, pre- I mean, well, in both cases, in the parallel stories, in preserving memory. Yeah, I, I, I think in throughout hi- history, you think of the woman as a sort of the, let's say, matriarch of the family or the keeper of the, the memories and in this book, we have a lot of, I'll, I'll use mothers, we have mothers in different kinds of roles. So Fiona becomes kind of, she is a mother, and we see that in 2015, but in the 80s, she becomes sort of the, the mother hen, let's say, uh, for, for all of these men that have lost families, or, or it's a sort of a surrogate family for, for a lot of them. So in that, she's trying to care for and make sure they're taken care of. And then later on in 2015, I, not helping with, but being kind of a witness to what happened uh, in, in the eighties. But but you also have um, w- women in in like Gail's mother, for instance, who just walks away, has no interest in keeping any kind of memory or any kind of connection with Yale at all. I mean, she's just out of the picture from I don't know if it was day one. I, yeah, from I, very very beginning. From the very yeah. beginning. Um, but 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 then you have other people's mothers who step step up. Like we find out about Julian's mother at the end, who what is it? it was mortgages the house and to make sure that because he doesn't have insurance and make sure he gets the the drugs that he needs. So he's still living in 2015. Uh, so so it's it's women play a role in in this story as both keeping up the memories and as protectors. 
I want to say, right, as a protecting force. And father is also pretty much a mixed bag in the story. Almost non-existent. Yeah, so there are some father figures, I suppose, that are more present in the story than others, but I think Amy's right that, well, I think both of you are right, it's sort of a mixed bag, right? So we see Yale's father who calls every Sunday and has sort of a very clinical relationship with his son. I don't think an uncaring relationship by any means, but certainly not the warm and fuzzies, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, it's actually, it was funny because when, when I read, that was one of the um, parts that brought tears to my eyes was when it, I could feel the father trying to connect to Yale on the phone. I think it was when he, he says something very awkward like, um, so you hear about that d- disease? And, and Yale responds very poorly because it's just, they, they just can't, you know, one is up here and one is down here and they just can't get at it. Um, and he, I don't know, storms off. And like, I'm going to the very gay, private, like he makes some kind of a statement that he knew would make his father uncomfortable. And then the conversation ends. Um, so I agree. It's definitely not uncaring, but it's certainly, he doesn't know how to make the connection. Then another theme um, which is made very clear is um, uh, the, the term the lost generation, which was uh, coined to refer uh, to the artists in Paris and the, the devastation uh, after World War One and after the influenza uh, and uh, the loss of so many people and then th- there was a void. Uh, and the lost generation was were not those who died but those who remained. And then of course a parallel to the gay community uh, and and uh, those who were part of it who were not gay. So Fiona is part of that lost generation uh, in the current day who, uh, as Alvin, you said, uh, particularly with a town like Chicago, where it was uh, so devastated and you had, you had close groups and so many people were gone. And those who remained, we talked about survivors and survivors' guilt and their burden, but that term was coined as a lost generation. That, that feels as if that's apt. And one thing I thought that was interesting about the book is that it's very clear that the way a lot of people deal with uh, having been part of a lost generation or the the guilt that's associated with that is art. So we see Nora earlier in in the historic in sort of the timeline of the the story. Um, she obviously becomes kind of obsessed with preserving and maintaining and passing on all of this art that she happened to collect uh, from these artist friends of hers, including her great love. Uh, And then later in the book, we see again that Richard and others, the way that they sort of cope and deal with the fact that they're still around and others are not, is again to try and memorialize it through art. Um, And so I, I found that interesting because the book itself is a piece of art, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a piece of literature. And again, the book is a way of sort of preserving and passing on this kind of moment in time. And so it's kind of all very meta, I think. That's <laughs> wonderful. So uh, one last issue, and, and you know, maybe you all have more, but uh, appropriation. So the author herself is very sensitive to appropriating the story which belongs to others. And she talks about this in, in a number of interviews. Uh, how she very much wanted to avoid it. And, and her, her view, uh, which I think is appropriate and right, is that uh, she needed to, and you mentioned her research, she needed to be absolutely accurate in how she uh, factually portrayed the population. 
uh, and uh, she needed to uh, be a source, again, Helvin, you said it earlier, for others to learn and perhaps to do more uh, on the topic. I like the way you, you refer to the book as art. The book is art. Uh, do you have any views about whether she's appropriating a story that belongs to others? So it's certainly not my story, and so I certainly didn't feel like she was appropriating anything from me. I would be curious to see how someone who lived through that experience would respond, but my guess, based on my conversations with people that did live through all of it, is that they would feel that it was very true to, true to the story, true to sort of the historical situation at the time. Um, I mean, as we all have mentioned now, the book was incredibly well-researched, it seems like. And what's interesting to me also is that uh, although a lot of the book is written from Fiona's perspective, a lot of the book is also written from Yale's perspective. And so you kind of forget when he's sort of the, the narrative voice that it is a woman author. Um, it sort of sounds like you're just hearing about a man's story who is living through this terrible experience. Uh, and so I, I, don't, I don't know if, I, I'd be curious to hear what others, uh, how they would respond to that question, but that's sort of my reaction. I was going to say, I, I mean, I understand her point on the appropriation, but at the bottom, it's, it's, a, hu it's a human condition. I mean, she's picking yes. out certain events, but you could, you, know, you pick a survivor of the Holocaust and tell, tell a story. You pick a, from the, you know, different crises around the world from, and you're going to have the same themes and like you said I mean she takes her time she 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 researches it and and she talks to people and then she presents it's it always has to be her view so her 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 voice comes through um, but I think she treats her characters with sensitivity and and they're all it's in a mixed bag of characters yeah right I mean so. some are clearly more Yale clearly more sympathetic than a lot of other characters in the story any other themes that we should talk about? That's I think we've gotten through everything I jotted down. About <laughs> you, Amy. Um, I, we, actually, something we were talking about, how it was kind of, we didn't know, you, you wanted to find out if Yale survived. So I think she does a very good job of, of a, a, literary, uh, <laughs> a literary point was in stringing you along is probably suspense. the wrong word. But suspense, yeah. because you don't know what happens to Yale. And certainly you don't know that at the end, you're gonna have. Uh, we were doing spoilers, right? Well, so let, let's, spoilers. Hold, let's hold. Let's hold. Let's hold. Let's hold off on, on the answer to that question. Right. But the suspense is There's there. Sus the suspense is there, and it's and it's and it's well done, and it's it's really it's like life. Yeah. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, there's that one piece um, that she has in there when when Yell's diagnosed when he has it's it's almost like a poem where he they just have snippets of things that he's never going to get to do. That was another point which sort of got me right in the heart. Uh, it, was, it was well done. Very well done. Well, thank you, very, thank you both very, very much. The um, AIDS uh, epidemic, uh, according to the World, World Health, Health Organization, uh, took the lives of, uh, I think it's over 36 million people since the first cases were reported in 1981. Uh, it goes on today, uh, especially in Africa. And so if uh, this book and other, others like it uh, make people more aware of the crisis and uh, the difficulties that people are going through, I think that's very valuable. So thank you very, very much, both of you. Thanks thank for you. having us. More information about our guests today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team, 
Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, my bookmark, and other merch to come. Let me know if you'd like a bookmark sent to you. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything, even on maternity leave, and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And of course, Carol is my muse. Jake continues to grow and to express a two-month-old's interest in being read to. Thanks to Allison and especially to Avalon at Oric, who helped produce this episode of the podcast. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests. Thanks to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time. <laughs>